0: The question says, what does it mean as a Christian? So that really made me think. Is it it that contentment to the Christian, for the Christian, of the Christian, has a different ring to it or a different flavor to it? Is there any difference between being content as a human being who does not acknowledge God and does not... um, In other words, it's just basically a mature attitude towards life that realizes some things can't be changed, and so we accept those. Is there anything different from that for those of us who seek to follow Christ with our life? I think that it is. I think there is a difference, and so I I want to um, explore that from these scriptures that these ladies read earlier in Philippians 3 and Philippians 4. I just would start with noting that uh, like I was trying yesterday to catch some of these spotted lantern, lantern flies or to kill them, um, or to trying to catch a, a cricket, something that springs away from you just as you almost seem like you think you're at it or you're going to get it, and ping, ping, it goes off some other direction. This seems to be the, the, uh, the reality often of contentment. It seems as a condition or as a... As a uh, an attitude, it seems often rather elusive. People, everybody wants to be content. We all, none of us want to live dissatisfied lives, and lives that are always yearning and, and, and wanting something different. But people have pursued this feeling of peace and peacefulness in many different ways, and have often found that it just seems as though it... It jumps away from you. It's just as like you're trying to catch a cricket or a lanternfly. <clears throat> um, I believe that the standard definition of contentment would be something like living happily or in your current circumstances or accepting your circumstances. Something on that order is our idea of contentment. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that, and that's certainly worth pursuing in our lives as a goal that we would be accepting of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Tough. This is a tough, tough thing because circumstances are uh, sometimes so different than what we dream about and what we picture and what we want. You find yourself lying in a hospital bed somewhere or in a nursing home uh, doing rehab or something and you're sitting there not just for a few hours or even a few days, but weeks or months and and the frustration with your life can can grow intense. This isn't what you wanted. This isn't what you feel like you signed up for, but the, then you realize that we, we didn't sign up for anything. We're just born. Here we are. We just show up, and we have to ride whatever waves we are given. But what I want to say and try to explain is it seems to me like as a Christian, which is the content of this question, what does it mean to be content as a Christian? That it seems to me that contentment, as it's described by Paul in these Philippian passages, is deeper and more exciting than just understanding or accepting the circumstance. It's it's beyond that, and it's taking uh, our, our lives to a level beyond simply circumstance. It's Living life contentment as a Christian is living life in the purpose of God and aim toward the purpose of God, and very only very lightly allows circumstances of our of our lives to um, to affect our goals and our dreams and our hope. So let's look at these 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 verses that uh, these two ladies read earlier. And the first one in Philippians 3 deals with a sense of of our attitude. This is the difference, what I'm saying is, that these, these point out, the difference is Christ versus circumstance. Normally, we think of contentment as accepting our circumstance. Paul says here, as he talks about this issue, no, it's more than that. It's pursuing Christ. Circumstances fall where they may. My The health of my body comes and goes as it, as it will. But I'm pursuing Christ with my life. And in that pursuit of Him, I find the, the restlessness and the things that cause me to discontent just melt away. They fade away because they're no longer governing the disposition of my life. Um, in the beginning of this passage, he talks about in chapter 3, verse six, and verse 5 and 6, he talks about his pedigree. He talks about his history, how he was born into a very um, prominent family. And he is born into, it just happens to be, a, a chosen tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. The Benjamin was one of the tribes that stayed loyal to King David in all that Old Testament, swirling around of, of, of strife and bloodshed. Judah and Benjamin were close to one another geographically. King David was from the tribe of Judah. And so these, these two were, were sort of the, the, uh, the favorites of each other. And Paul says, I was from this tribe. I had this pedigree. I was born in this circumstance. I had flawless education. I grew up with many advantages and when I became an adult, I chose to pursue those advantages. And I had a good reputation. I was flawless in my execution. And he tells about how he he was zealous for the law, which he felt then that Christians were uh, faulty uh, uh, towards. So he pursued Christians to get rid of them in his, in his zeal for the Jewish law. So he says, it, don't, it really doesn't matter. You could pick and choose any. Type of advantage of your life, any kind of a, of, of a feeling, that any kind of, a, of, of something that causes you to feel good about yourself, to feel perhaps proud of yourself. It could be circumstance. It could be talent. It could be resources. It could be health. It could be education that you have. It could be the fact that you've been able to travel or had opportunities that other people never have that cause you to kind of perhaps not outwardly, but inwardly, swagger a bit and say, I'm, I'm better off than this person, I'm better off than this person, I'm smarter, I'm stronger, I have this advantage. Paul calls these things, anything, no matter what it is, it's something that gives me confidence in my flesh. It's something about which I feel very good about myself. I feel very proud about myself. Could be some accomplishment or achievement. Could be the house that I live in. I could say, you know, all the other houses on this block is pretty are pretty ordinary. My house is quite extraordinary. You know, I've got this design or I've got this, uh, I've got this uh feature, and it just sets mine apart as unique. It doesn't matter what it is, it's what he calls here. It is those things that give confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul Paul lists a list that was important to him and he says, Those things are irrelevant. I've come to the point in my pursuit of Christ where all of these things that would make me feel good about myself, and that naturally should be seems to be a very laudable thing, a very Important thing that we have a good self-image and we feel good about myself. And Paul said every bit of those, every bit of that self-confidence, all of these things that give me confidence in my fleshly achievements or my, my fleshly nature, they're all expendable if they're if they're lost or if they're damaged. He goes on to say, they they're not going to stop me from accomplishing the most important aspect of life. I want to know. Christ. I want to pursue Christ. I want he uses the word gain or profit. I want that to be on the profit side of my ledger. Not just that I heard about Christ, I heard that a church is called the Church of Christ or something like that. I want to know. And he said all of these things that I that I cheer on about my life and I say, "Well, this is a notch on my Accomplishment. This is a notch on my stick. Um, all of those things, if I lost them, or if they, if they turn sideways, or maybe I'm proud of my health. I've taken care of my body, and, and you know, here I am up in years, and I'm just very vigorous, and I'm happy and have pretty much confidence. And then one day you get up, only oh, no, you don't get up, because your health is just taking a 1A. He said, okay, whatever it is, it cannot prevent me, these things of my fleshly nature and fleshly circumstances cannot prevent me from knowing Christ. And that's what's important, and that's what, I pursue, that's what I'm pursuing. And he says, the point is that none of those things matter as much as knowing Christ. Now, these are not bad things, understand. None of these things that I mentioned, none of these things that Paul mentioned, they're all wonderful things in themselves, some achievement or accomplishment or whatever. they're, They're all wonderful. But he says, if it's necessary for me to part with them for the sake of knowing Christ, I will choose to do that and know that I've made a good deal. In fact, he uses, uh, he uses a word in verse 7 and verse 8 that kind of caught my eye as being significant. I put a little tiny box there in your sermon notes that says, profit, lost profit. He says in verse 7, whatever was to my profit, and that's all of these accomplishments that he's talked about, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. Why? What good is that? I had all these wonderful things that I've achieved or that I have dreamed and I've accomplished and I just consider them not important. I put them in the loss column. They were my profit column. Why? What is the point? What does that accomplish? It goes on and says, I consider them a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him having a righteousness. Uh, The word gain, now I'm reading the NIV, the word profit in verse 7 and the word gain in verse 8 is the exact same word in the Greek text. And I realize that what he's saying here is, I had something that I thought I profited by. But if necessary to give that up in order to profit Christ, to lose this, to gain this is no great loss at all. It would be like let's say you, you, you have a house and your house is paid for and you like your house let's say it's just I'm just going to say it has a market value of a quarter of a million bucks, 250. Just throwing this figure out here it doesn't mean anything. So you live in this house, and uh, down the street here is a fellow that you know who may be a friend and uh, his house is much bigger than yours and much nicer than yours. His, worth, his house is worth 500000 And you're fine with your house, and you're happy for him and his house. And one day he comes and he says, I want to downsize. Uh, I don't want to go through all the heebie-jeebies and all the mess. I, I was wondering, would you like to switch houses? I would be glad to give you my house If you give me your house, I'll come live in your house. Now, there's two ways of looking at it. One way is to say, my house is worth $250,000. I give it to somebody? Why would I possibly give my house to somebody? And it would be considered, it would be a loss to you to give up this house. But the other way, of course, is to say, duh, duh. I'm giving up 250 to give 500 That's a no-brainer. I'm giving up what I had gained. I'm taking a loss, but I'm gaining something greater on the other side of it. So this is what he means when he says, all this stuff I consider as a loss so that I can profit, even greater profit in Christ. What is the goal if this is his attitude that all of the, all of the circumstances of earth are put on uh, beneath him for the sake of this dream, this goal of pursuing Christ, Christ, this, this goal? Let me, let me read on more as he says this, verse 12. I have already not already attained this. I have not been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have, take, have having taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal. So here's the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. What in the world does this phrase mean? That for which Christ has taken hold of me. I don't know what it means to you. But there's a reason that Christ took hold of you. And Paul says, that's what all that matters. My goal, and I'm calling it here, God's purpose. Some, some reason the Lord has saved us. There's some reason that God has, has reached down His hand and got a hold of us. And got, a hold of my, got me under the armpits and lifted me up above my sin or sin out of my sin and my failure and so forth. And Paul says, my goal is to fulfill that purpose, whatever it is, and each of us have to try to figure that out in our own life, in our own circumstance. But he says, God took hold of me, and I want to accomplish what it is that He took hold of me for. When he, when he did that, that's my purpose—to achieve something for which God has given me the signal, has taken me by the hand, has called me out, has blessed me, has saved me. And so, this very familiar verse, verse thirteen, where he says, "I press on towards the goal," for the um, verse. um, I'm sorry, verse thirteen that says, "I." I forget what is behind, and I strain towards what is head, and I press towards the goal for the prize. This, to me, seems like in the accomplishment of a goal, it is often something very hard to do. It is often difficult to forget what is behind. And I find this especially true of young folks when they're in the process of leaving home, establishing their own adulthood and their own identity. And they love their parents, and they love their family, and they love their childhood. They love their community and their neighborhood, but that which Christ has taken hold of me is pulling them some other direction. And it's very, very hard to forget what is behind. I also find this to be very difficult in my conversations with folks who are sick, who are elderly, who are facing death. It's very, very, it's, 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 a, it's a very hard thing to say, well, I've lived these years and I've done these jobs, I've raised this family, I've, I've had this wonderful, beautiful experience, but now I have to prepare to leave it behind. I have to prepare my mind and my heart to leave all this precious dear things of people and the accomplishments and so forth but i'm pressing on there's a new adventure there's a new goal there's a heaven uh, to gain and i and i'm i have to realistically set earthly things aside because i'm not allowed to stay here but so long this is a difficult thing for us to process but Until what he's saying here is you cannot appreciate the present and you cannot really prepare for the future until you're able to do that. It doesn't mean that we hate our past or we're disgusted about our past. He's just saying, I have to forget it. I have to keep it in its place so that I can accept and live today and prepare for tomorrow. This is all part of contentment. It's not just saying, well, it's raining today, so I guess I'll just have to work inside. I accept my circumstances. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. But contentment for the Christian is more than simply having a casual, uh, laid-back attitude about things that we cannot control. Paul said it's, 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 it's realizing that life is a journey and, and never um, getting bogged down at one point. Because God's going to pull me forward. And I have to be uh, accepting of that. And so he says in verse 15, everybody who's mature (laughs) needs to look at life like this. And, And so it seems to me that part of the contentment of a Christian is to seek to live like this. In every circumstance that we seek to have this maturity that says, this is not just about being unable to change some things. It's about pursuing and gaining the, the greatest profit of all, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God. So uh, when I take from this statement about pursuing the goal and pressing towards the prize and so forth, that um, contentment does not mean, as sometimes it's pictured, laziness. Oh yeah, they're always content, it doesn't matter, because they're really just kind of a lethargic person. I saw a cartoon years ago, I've always remembered this, it was a <laughs> old hillbilly with a, with a floppy old hat and barefoot, and he's standing beside this squalid shack that's hanging on the side of a bank, and it's, you know, the porch is propped up with rocks, and and, and there's an old sow or cow or a few animals around. And over here's a, over here's a oh, couple old hound dogs on their coops. And they just got the laziest looks on their face. And over here uh, is a couple old rusty vehicles up on cinder blocks and brushing weeds growing up through them. And, I mean, it's just a picture of neglect. And beside this man is, this, um, is his son, this uh, little scrawny buck tooth kid. And the old guy has his hand on, on the kid's shoulder and he's, and he's kind of sweeping his arm around the homestead and he said, Son, someday all this will be yours. And I always remembered it because it was just, it was just the very picture of neglect and laziness and so forth. And being being content in that situation. That guy in the cartoon and sometimes some of us in real life, we don't, we're content basically because we don't ever try anything or want anything. We don't have any particular goals. That's not what the Bible speaks of as contentment, being lazy and saying, well, I don't need to worry about pressing towards the goal because I don't even have a goal. Well, go ahead and find a goal and pursue it. You can still be content. You can still keep things in their place. You can still put Christ above circumstance. Um, Those things, uh, those things, not, in other words, not all good things that we pursue in life are not, let me say it this way, not all workaholics are workaholics because they're greedy for money or they're hungry for money. Some are quite content. I've met many people I hope I'm one of them myself who love to work, who enjoy work, who are still content even though they're driven, even though they work. They're not just simply sitting around and letting the weeds grow up through their cars. It's that it doesn't mean because someone works hard that they are simply greedy for money. Enjoying work, uh, enjoying work uh, many people enjoy work because that work expresses their calling. The reason that God took hold of me. It expresses their dream. It expresses their, their hopes and their goal. <clears throat> this is what it means as a Christian. I want to take hold of that which God took hold of me for. And, and that is my motivator. and my, It drives me. And therefore, it keeps circumstances in their proper condition. Now, the last part, chapter chapter 4, he, he goes through this very familiar litany of of giving some wonderful advice about how to live life. And in the midst of that, he says, there's a secret. There's a secret that I have learned to being content. And I want to I finish this up by, by looking at this. First of all, he says, if you want to be content, you want to be happy in circumstances, you want to be um, caught up in pursuing and gaining a knowledge of Christ, rejoice in the Lord. Don't rejoice whether you're high or low. Don't rejoice whether your wallet's fat or thin. Don't rejoice whether your car is this year's or 20, 10 years or 20 years. Rejoice in the Lord. Not in all this stuff that you have or you don't have. And then he says, be gentle. Why? Why? Because the Lord is near. And I think of all the circumstances that cause us to be worked up. That cause us to be frustrated. That cause us to be angry. That cause us, that cause us to just, just burn with emotion. Sometimes things we're afraid of. And so therefore we, get quite, we can get quite Emotional. Sometimes we can rant and rave and yell, scream, and and punch somebody. We get so emotional about these different circumstances. Here's Paul's advice when you're feeling like you're ready to punch somebody, stop and say, The Lord is near. Just stop and look up and say, The Lord is near, and it will calm you. Be gentle. Let the calmness, the gentleness of God and the presence, the closeness of His presence, let it affect you emotionally. I don't need, I don't need an escape, whether it's through a, a drug, whether it's through a vent of my anger, I don't, whether it's punching somebody or punching my pillow. Um, I'm not saying that those are necessarily wrong. What I'm saying is, Here's the real answer. It's not expressing my rage or my fear. The real answer is realizing that the Lord is near and the joy that that brings and the calmness that that brings to life. And then he says, pray. Speak to the Lord about these circumstances that uh, I'm feeling uh, discontented about, that I'm feeling troubled about. Pray, talk to Him, verse 6. And then, I noticed in verse chapter 4, verse 7, and also down in chapter 4, verse 9, something that is very significant. The peace of God, you present your request to the Lord, and the peace of God will... Fill your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. I think we need to quit saying, Oh God, give me peace. And we need to start saying, Oh God, I receive your peace. I receive it. We don't have to beg for it. We have to just simply open up our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and take it. The peace of God will. It's there. It's available for us. We don't need to keep asking for Him to send us peace. And then verse 8, a well-known verse where he says, Think about positive things. I actually sit down instead of watching the news or some of the crazy stuff that we hear. I actually sit down and read or think of Go out and visit a neighbor or and figure out some things that he says are filled with love and filled with um, n- n- nobility and things that are uh, true and pure and right and lovely, this kind of stuff. Think about stuff like that. Just turn off the negative sometimes and turn on the positive and just say, wow, this is a very positive thing that happened. And I I am just profoundly filled with joy. And think of it. Put it in your thoughts. Put it in your cranium and, and dwell on it. Because, he says, I'm almost done. The peace of God will fill you. Verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I think Angie read that about four times for us. Because I've learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or want, I here it is. I can do, I can do it. It's a, it's a kind of a unique construction. The, um, the Greek term is, it just has two words, Panta eskuo Ponta means all things, anything, everything. eskuo means, it's a, it's a powerful word. It means, um, I can handle it. That's what it means. The, I think the King James translates it, I can do. Can do what? Panta, all things. But it, it doesn't mean just accomplish. It, it, it means, it could be uh, that I can accomplish, but it could mean that I could accept or I can endure. It's a, it's a wide-stretching word, and it's translated in many different ways in the New Testament, depending on the context. But all of them are overcoming words. All of them uh, are are words that say, I can do this. And so uh, you can fill in whatever you want to fill in in this blank. When, When Paul says, wait a minute, let me go back. When Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You can just take out the word all things and you can... You can put in the word betrayal or rejection. I can accept betrayal. I can endure rejection. I can accept loneliness. I can endure sickness. I can overcome loss. I can do it, esquo. I'm simply, I'm simply saying, it just says, all things I can do. All things I can handle. I can, I can deal with, I can, I can handle marriage. I know there's moments where you think you can't, but you can I can handle divorce. In those heartbroken moments where tears stream down our face, we think, I can't handle this. But he says here, Panta escuo. I can endure. I can... Let me go back to the list. All of these are in the New Testament. All these are just translations of this word. It doesn't have to just be do. We can say, I can triumph over divorce. I can prevail over divorce. Sometimes we feel like the children God has given to us or more than we can handle, or bear. Or the grandkids. But guess what? I can do grandkids. Or kids. With all of the, all of the terrors that come with that, all the unknowns that come with that. I can be effective. Um, some folks would love to have kids. For them, the curse is childlessness. You can do childlessness. You can do, you can endure, you can accept, You can triumph over these kind of things. Fill in the blank. Grief, therapy, disappointment, responsibility. I can do my responsibility. This is the secret that Paul says. This this attitude, this goal that I'm pursuing because I'm pursuing Christ, I have God's inner spiritual strength. And that transforms the troubles that I face. The attitude becomes uh, ponta escuo. I can, I can handle this. It's horrible, but I know that I can because somebody is given me an inner strength. And this inner strength is greater than the the, the trial, the disability. Um, I just want to close with this verse in 2 Corinthians 12. We're all, we've all heard this many times, but think about it. Paul is saying, please let me escape from this circumstance. Please take me out of this. Please heal me. Please make me better. Please change my circumstance. And God says, I'm just going to help you to do it. I'm just going to help you to make it through it. I'm not going to take this thorn away. But you can do thorns, Paul. You can handle thorns. And my strength will be made perfect in that type of a circumstance. I'm sorry I went over. Uh, didn't realize that uh, time was fleeting so fast. So rather than sing a closing song, can we stand together, please? Lord, as you see us today as a group, as a congregation, as family, you know there are many things we need to do, to be able to do. Many thorns we need to accept, endure. And you can help us and will help us with every single one of them. It's a secret to our contentment as Christians. Others may not understand and they may say, why don't you uh, pull that thorn out? Or why don't you allow something to fix that situation. Why don't you try this or try that? How can you act somehow as if there are other things more important? It's not that the thorns don't matter, Lord. It's just that something else is even more important. And so in light of that, if we must bear, bear the thorn, we can do it. We thank you, we thank you for sharing with us this this secret, for giving to us this goal that uh, that helps us to rise above the circumstances that we find ourselves in so that we can accept whatever flavor given. And it doesn't mean that the other flavors are bad or that we're still not trying to accomplish things, but we accept these things that we literally cannot change bless your name you have taken hold of us and our our goal today O Lord is to take hold of you for whatever the reason is that you have first taken hold of us may your grace may your wisdom may your power go with us today in Jesus holy name